start it with it down there and see if that works. Well, good morning. How's everybody? All right. Um, we are going to begin the study of First and Second Thessalonians. So if you'll open your book, I have a handout, and I don't know if Harold's going to bring it up or not. If he doesn't, I'll go back down and get it, but you can get a handout. We can get your handout before the, before the lesson's over. So all of us have read, at one time or another, the book of First Thessalonians. So I call, I'll call on your memories this morning to see if you can um, possibly tell me what would you think that the key word, what would be the key word for the book of First Thessalonians, not necessarily Second Thessalonians yet, although they're, you're going to find they share a lot in common because they're talking about the same subject, the same theme. Um, what would you say if, what would you say after reading the book of First Thessalonians, what would be the key word for that, for that book, those books, or for that book, First Thessalonians? What would you think? Well, let's talk about if you don't know, if you don't think about the key word, let's talk about let's talk about what the theme or the overall um, subject of First and Second Thessalonians would be. Hmm? Well, faith is certainly a part of it. Um, the the Thessalonican church, and would it surprise you? And we'll come back to the, the Thessalonican church uh, when we start talking about the the geographics. What I always do on the first class period is if you're in here and you're trying to determine what class you want to go to for this quarter, I give you an overview of the book. So you can go away from here today and you'll know everything you need to know about First Thessalonians. Then if you decide, yeah, this is something I want to talk, I want to hear about, then you can come back and we'll delve and we'll exegete the rest of the book, the, the five chapters. Would it surprise you if you if I were to tell you that this is the very first book that Paul wrote. This is the very first book that he wrote. He wrote this while he was in Athens in about 52 AD. And it is concerning, or it has to do with the subject that was very much on the minds of the Thessalonian church, but also on the minds of other congregations. And this is specific to... Thank you, Harold. This is specific to... The second coming of Christ. So we're only about 52, 30, so we're 20 or so years removed from, we're only 20 or so years removed from Christ being on this earth. Thank you, dear. And so lots of questions arose. What would some of those questions be? If you were thinking about the coming of Christ and you were a first century Christian at one of these churches at Corinth, at Galatia, at Ephesus, at Corinth, at Thessalonica, what would be one of the things? You hear about the Lord, you heard about you hear about his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and his promise to do what? To come again. Now what's the logical question that you would ask? When? And when is the only answer we don't have. We have answers to all the other questions. We have the how. First and Second Thessalonians tell us how. Where? We have the answer to that. Who? We know who is going to be at the judgment. We know everyone's going to be there. But we don't know the when. 
And this was a question, or this was a, not a problem, but this was a question that arose in the early church. Well, Jesus said he was coming back. Is it going to be today? Is it going to be tomorrow? Is it going to be in 10 years? Is it going to be in 50 years? Is it going to be in 100 years? And here we sit in 2022, and the Lord could return before the end of this class. Paul says that his return is going to be sudden. It's going to come as what? A thief in the night. So if you knew a thief was coming into your house, you'd plan. But you don't know when a thief will come. Not they suffered. Suffered is the wrong word to use. They were suffering great persecution. So yeah, yeah. So we pick up if we pick up the Thessalonian church in in Acts because everything starts in the book of Acts. You remember how we you remember how we broke down we broke down the New Testament. This is how you this is how you begin to talk to someone about the Bible. The first four books tell us what life of Christ written to four different groups, right? Matthew written to the Jews, Mark written to the Romans, Luke was a Greek, so this was written to the, the Greeks, and John written to everyone. So you have four books that tell you about the life of Christ, four gospel accounts. There's only one gospel, there's only one gospel, there are four gospel accounts, okay? So we know about the life of Christ, the perfect example. All right? Now, what's Acts? How to become a Christian. The history book of the church. The history book of the church. But mainly, exactly what Wayne said. How do, you, how do I become a Christian? And examples of how to become a Christian. And embedded within the book of Acts is every book that comes after it and how those churches started. And so to, to look at the church at Thessalonica... We have to go to Acts 17. So you should be flipping between Acts 17 and 1 Thessalonians 1 to get a, a preview of what's going to happen. Paul came to Thessalonica from where? Where had he been persecuted before he came to Thessalonica? The blank jailer. The Philippian jailer. So he was in Philippi. And they rode him out of town on a rail. And he went to Thessalonica from there. So everything that you know about Paul's travels, you're going to find in the book of Acts. And all of these churches, the church at Corinth, the church at Rome, the church at Ephesus, the church at Galatia, the church at Thessalonica, all those are found in the book of Acts. It's the history book of the church, how to become a Christian. What about Romans through Jude? How to live the Christian life. 75% of the New Testament is how to live the Christian life. So we have Christ, the perfect example, the history of the church. 75% of the, of, of, the bio, of the New Testament is how to live the Christian life. That only, leaves, that only leaves one aspect, and that's the book of Revelations. What's that for the Christian? How to die as a Christian. The people who were living in the time of the book of Revelation when John wrote it on the Isle of Patmos, those people were suffering for, the, for, for Christ. They were literally giving their lives up for Christ. In the amphitheaters, in the forums, they were dying for Christ. And so the book of Revelation, the theme of the book of Revelation is if you can overcome, you can come over. And that's the New Testament. And that's how you go about talking to people who, who maybe want to know more about the Bible. You break it down into bite-sized chunks for them. Old Testament, New Testament. Old Testament tells us someone's coming. 
The New Testament in the beginning tells us someone has come. He's here. And the book of Revelation and the book of Thessalonians tell us he's coming again. And that's the theme and the thrust of the book of 1 and 2 Thessalonians is Christ is coming again. But in the meantime, before he comes, how are we going to live as Christians? And that's the theme and the thrust of these two books. The key word, as you will note from your handout, if, you, if everybody got a handout, if you didn't get one, we can make some more. Um, the key word is hope. Does the return of Christ, does Christ coming again, fill you with hope? Or does it fill you with dread? That really tells you where you are in your Christian walk. Or if you're not a Christian, what you need to fix. So Christ is coming again. He said, if I go, I'll come again and take you to where I am. Where I am, there you may be also. And so the key word for the the Christian, the key word for, for anyone in the book of Thessalonians is the word hope. There are key verses, and I have written those down for you. uh, But the key verse is uh, chapter 2, verse 13. And chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason we also thank God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is, in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. And so the key phrase from that, from that verse 2.13, which is, the key, which is one of the key verses in, uh, in, in the book, is the word of God. If that word is implanted in you, if it's made a part of you, if that's the way you live then the second coming of Christ fills you with nothing but expectation and anticipation and hope. And if you don't have that, the coming of Christ may signal something is wrong in your life and that you need to address that. The key chapter in 1 Thessalonians is chapter 5. Is chapter 5. And the subject, as we talked about it, this, the, the subject is Christ is, is coming again. You will note at the end of every chapter... Of all five chapters in the book of 1 Thessalonians, at the end of every chapter, there's something said about the coming of Christ. It's that important. It's, it's, it's just ingrained in all five chapters. It's ingrained in all five chapters. The hope of the faithful at the second coming, a church that was, as Chuck said, they were experiencing affliction. They were experiencing trials. They were being persecuted. Now, if we step back and look at the church at Thessalonica, there are two types of people in the first century who would have become Christians. Who, who, are, the two, who are the two groups of people that would have become Christians? Jews, Jews and, and Gentiles. That, that's pretty simple. Jews and Gentiles. Who of those two groups were most readily attracted to this new church that Christ had established? Who, who were the most receptive? Gentiles. The Gentiles. And all the Gentiles that were parts of that were part of this new this new kingdom, this new church, all of these Gentiles were just filthy rich, right? They were all rich. They were all upper class. They were all no. What were they? They were poor. Christ attracted poor people. He attracted slaves. He attracted those who didn't have much, if anything. And so the church is comprised at Thessalonica just like at all the other churches. The corpus of the body of Christ at Thessalonica were Gentiles and there were poor people. 
Most of these people had to go to work at like 4 or 5 in the morning. And so the church usually met early in the early morning hours. They didn't come to church at 10.30 in the morning. You didn't get off from work to come to church. You were a slave. You were busy working. You didn't, you didn't get an hour for lunch. You were, you, you were, there, most, you were there most of the day, most, most times all day. And so the church in the, in the first century usually met in the very early morning hours before people had to go to work. And so the other group, the Jews, at every turn, when you read in the book of, in the book of Acts, at every turn, the Jews are giving Paul problems. They're persecuting him. Paul was a Roman citizen. He was not supposed to be subject to any corporal punishment. He was not supposed to be beat. But in the Philippian letter, or in Acts 17, or in Acts 16, we're told that he was beaten. He was thrown into jail. This man's a Roman citizen, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And so he was persecuted, and just as these, just as these members of the Thessalonican church were persecuted, just as members of all of the early churches were persecuted. And not persecuted like we are today. If we don't have the air conditioning set at a comfortable temperature, we're being persecuted. Or if it's cold outside and the church is not warm enough, we're being persecuted. That's not the kind of persecution I'm talking about. You will hopefully never in your life experience persecution on the level that these people did. But it might happen. It might happen. So a greatest, a greatest, the greatest incentive for faithfulness for these Christians was a belief that Christ was coming again. And based on the fact that he was coming again, the, the, this book of 1 Thessalonians was written. It was written in about 52 A.D., about 52 A.D. A year later, in 53 A.D., he writes the second book because something happens. And he's in Corinth, or he's in, uh, I think he's still in Athens at the time, but he writes the second book to them based on something, based on something that happened. So, Christ is coming again. He is the hope in the midst of all persecution. Is that a hope that we have today? Are we persecuted today? How are we, per- how are we persecuted today? How are you persecuted? It says all those who live faithful in Christ Jesus, what, might suffer persecution? No. Shall. If you're living for Christ, you're going to suffer persecution. So you need to ask yourself, if I'm not suffering persecution today, what am I doing wrong? That's one of those man in the mirror, woman in the mirror type things. You've got to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I'm not being persecuted. I must not be doing all that I can do. Have you talked to someone about Jesus and have them have them just be just be ugly, vitriolic in your face about the they don't want to talk to you about Christ? No, you're being persecuted. You're not being beaten. You're not being imprisoned yet for being a Christian. But these people were. And so their hope, their hope lay in the second coming of Christ. So what do, we know about, what do we know about this city of Thessalonica? So we're going to talk a little bit about that um, in the time that we have. And we're going to skip over a lot because we'll go into more detail on that um, next week. As I said, this epistle was written. This is probably the, this is the very first epistle that Paul wrote. And we know Paul was the author because um, he alludes to this in the book of 1 Thessalonians. He alludes to things that happened in Acts 16 and in Acts 17. 
And so we know by tying those two chapters together with 1 Thessalonians, we know that he is the author. Wrote the first book in 52 AD, wrote the second one a few months later, up to a year later in 53 AD. These were his first writings, and these are probably the first books of the New Testament ever written. So, he had an affection for the Thessalonican church. His, his ministry in the synagogue to the Jews over three uh, separate Sabbaths did not yield what he wanted to, but the Gentiles were very receptive to the word. Uh, and we find that in we find the that he went from Thessalonica once this these letter once this uh, second missionary journey once this is done then he's going to be chased out of Thessalonica and he's going to go to Berea, and then he's going to go on to Corinth where uh, yeah Corinth where he's going to preach for 18 months and you find that in Acts 18. So we know everywhere along the way in the book of Acts where Paul was going and how these epistles were coming about how these were written. This book is, if you had to use, if you had to use three words to describe this this book, First Thessalonians, it's a book of simplicity. It's a book of gentleness, and it's a book of affection. He was writing this book to encourage the church in the midst of persecution, chapter two, verse fourteen. He was defending his conduct. He was assuring them of his love for them. He was warning them. At various stages, he was rebuking idleness. This is where in 1 Thessalonians where you find the term, if a man does not work, then he should not eat. Very timely for us today. If a man doesn't work, man should not eat. He was there to comfort those who were bereaved, those who felt like that they were losing their edge with regard to wanting the Lord to return and him not returning. And so they were, they were going to idleness. They were moving away from the things, uh, the, first, the first lessons that they had learned. So he exhorts them to watchfulness. He commends the church. He commends the brethren on various occasions throughout the book for their genuineness in the gospel, for their learning, for their faith, for their evangelistic zeal their long suffering in face of persecution. Who was persecuting who was persecuting the Gentiles in this church? The Jews. The Jews were persecuting them. The Jews were not accepting of the gospel. They were not accepting of the gospel. Why were they not accepting of the gospel? What was the problem with the Jews? They believed that they believed in Jesus because many of them had seen him, but they didn't believe him as who? As Messiah, he was not the Messiah to them. For them, Messiah hadn't come yet. For the Jews today, Messiah still has not come. And so this man who came, although he was a good man, they admit to the fact that he was a good man and he was a prophet and he was a he was a preacher. He was a pedagogue, if you want to use the Greek term. He was a pedagogue. He was a walk around preacher, but he wasn't Messiah because Messiah was supposed to do all the things that they thought Messiah would do. Free them from the Romans, set up a kingdom on earth, because this is what the Old Testament had told them was coming. See, they misread the fact that the kingdom was not going to be of this earth. They thought it was going to be an earthly kingdom. So when Jesus came into town riding on the back of a, of a donkey, this was, not the, this was not the leader they wanted. They wanted Jesus on a charger, on a, on a, on a black stallion, Ready to decimate, ready to decimate the Romans and take control and set up his earthly kingdom. That's not what he was here for. 
Sure. Sure. And the Jews, yeah. Yeah, and that was that's all. Yeah, that's all in that's all in the book of yeah. That's all in Acts 17 or Acts 16 where they they go and they do all this they do all this foolishness and that in 17 at Thessalonica is when they take Jason on and and you know you can read about that in Acts 17. Yes, sir. Uh, today or well, what you don't want to hear, what you don't want to hear, you you don't read. What you don't want to know about, you tell other people. You you shouldn't read that. You know, there's at least one instance where in the Old Testament a king took the Bible and did what to it? He cut it up. Cut it up with a penknife. Christ, in this epistle in 1 Thessalonians, the word Lord is mentioned 25 times. 25 times. Sure. Sure. And that, and that figured in with other passages, give us that patchwork so that we know everything. We, we know everything about the second coming of Christ. We know everything there is to know about the second coming, except what? So even Paul at any time. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would do a lot. Well, you know, and we're in, if you're in the first century and you've got to look at this book as you do with all New Testament books, you've got to look at this with first century eyes. You can't look at this with eyes 2022. You've got to look back and see how these people... Jews had everything separate from everybody else. They had their own markets. They had their own meat shops. They had their own uh, butcher shops, I mean. They had their own, they had their own separate everything. The Jews, the oh, sure. Yeah, they, oh, they, were, they, were, they were totally in bed with, with that to, to have what they needed to have. Gentiles, for the most part, were just left out. And so if you look at this through first century eyes, this makes the book more understandable to you from the standpoint of, of, okay, I can see now how these people are suffering. If you read this with 2022 eyes, you, you know, you're just going to be reading more books on a page. These people were anticipating, this is 20 years or, or so removed from Christ being on this earth. This is not 92 AD when, you know, John was writing Revelation on Patmos. This is 52. This is probably 20, 25 years from Christ having walked on this earth. And he said, I'm going to come back. Well, if you're living and he says you're going to come back and it's 20 years later, when? When's he going to, is he going to come back? When is he going to come back? And when he doesn't return, when you think he should, when he doesn't return, what does that do to you? What does that do to your faith? And so that's what, that's what Paul is talking about in the book of First and Second Thessalonians. He's talking about... He's talking about the, the return of Christ, but the fact is that the return is going to be sudden. It's not going to be something that you're not going to know about. Now, at the bottom of your handout, I think, bottom of your handout, yep, there are 17 words, there are 17 words and phrases, there are 17 words and phrases that occur nowhere else in the Bible. And I'll give you till next week to, that's your take home, that's your homework. You go through this and find the 17 words that are not, that are not found in any other book in the Bible. We, were we? Okay, all right. One of them is blamelessly. Blamelessly. Another one's nurse. Not found anywhere else. This is from uh, W. Graham Scroggie, in case you think I sat down and did all this. I didn't do all this. He wrote a book called Know Your Bible. And uh, I'm not sure when that was written, Know Your Bible. But anyway, I, I can give you that reference if you want it. So one of the things that he talks about, and this is, this is going to kind of bring the, bring the class to a conclusion today, is he uses the term in chapter 4, verse 14, he uses the term fallen asleep. What does that mean? Okay, this is the Lord's beautiful description of a faithful Christian's death. It fallen asleep. 
It's used in Matthew 27, it's used in John, it's used in Acts, it's used in 1 Corinthians, it's used in 2 Peter. It's used various places throughout the Bible. You can use a, a concordance uh, to find all of those. It is found in the epitaphs of many Christian burials in the catacombs in Rome. This person fell asleep or is asleep, uh, has fallen asleep in Christ. So what does this mean, this fallen asleep? Right? That's right. Or expected to rise when Paul says that the Lord's going to return again. Because he says when the Lord returns again, who's going to rise first? The dead, the dead in Christ. In Christ. Not just the dead. That's like Jesus just calling for Lazarus. What, had, what, what would have happened if Jesus, instead of saying, Lazarus, come forth, if he just said, come forth? What would have happened? Everybody would have been raised from the dead. But he was very specific. Lazarus, come forth. Well, there was came forth. Sure. Yeah. There were, some, there were some that were seen. Possibly other people named Lazarus. Because Lazarus rose from the dead, but Lazarus had to do what? Die. He had to die again. So, you know, being raised from the dead did have a, did have a, a downside. You, you had to die again. Jesus is the only one who was raised never to die again. No, I don't. I don't figure. I don't figure that he did. But anyway, this term, this term in chapter four, verse fourteen, um, in the American Standard Version, is uh, is a term that 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 means that intermediate state of consciousness. So if we look at Luke sixteen, because we know Luke sixteen tells us what happens after we die. So if you're ever curious about what happens after you die, you can go to Luke sixteen. See, the Bible has all the answers. You just have to know where to go to look to get the answer that that, that you want. It may not be the answer you want. But it's the answer to those things in Luke 16. We've talked about that on various occasions. This is what happened. Luke 16 tells you what happens when you die. You go to one of two places. You either go to the bosom of Abraham or you go to torment. And when you go to one of those other places, you pretty much know where you're going to go on the judgment day. And so this falling asleep is that intermediate state of consciousness for the righteous dead, that those people being in the bosom of Abraham while they await the resurrection of the body on the last day. Right, right. And that's why he says, right. Right. And that's why when we talk about this, you know, this whole thing about Jesus coming back to alleviate some of those misconceptions and also to give us what? The theme of the book. Hope. We understand this. We're ready for it. If you're not ready for it, you still have time to get ready. But time is short. I don't know when this earth could stand for another 2,000 years. I don't know. I just know that God's not going to destroy it by water, which is what he did in Genesis. How's he going to destroy it? It's going to be destroyed with fire. Nuclear fire? I don't know. He's going to destroy it with fire. That's what he's told me. Told me in the book. If you believe the book, then you know what's going to happen. And that's the second coming of Christ. It is remarkable, one scholar has written, it is remarkable that this is the first gospel, uh, or I'm sorry, first epistle. This is the first epistle that's written that talks about the last, the last day, or the last time. It is remarkable that this is the first one, and that subject is so important. Why is this subject so important? Why is the second coming of Christ important? Or is it not? Do you not even care? Is it the most important? 
Because based on the second coming of Christ, knowing that Christ is going to come again, some people become very uncomfortable. But other people are filled with joy. They're filled with hope. They're filled with expectation. And that's what he says. He says the dead in Christ will rise first. And then those of us who remain, those of us who remain, those of us who are not dead, if Jesus came back right now, the first people will be changed. He doesn't tell us what will be changed. We'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye. We'll take off this body that's subject to disease, this body that's subject to, to breakage, this body that's subject to all of the, the foibles of, that, that mankind can thrust upon us, all of these maladies and sicknesses that we get as we get older, all that will be gone. We'll put, off the incorru- we'll put off the corruptible and put on incorruptible. How many times, just to take a guess, in the 260 chapters of the New Testament, how many times is the second coming of Christ referred to? How many would you think? This is a ballpark guess. What do you think? 260 chapters in the New Testament. How many times is the return of Christ or the second coming of Christ mentioned? 318 times. And I've always told you when I lectured in school in college, when I lectured in college, if I told you something more than twice, what was it going to be? It was going to be on the test. 318 times, it's going to be on the final exam. Your final exam when you stand before God. And each of us will. Even John closes out the book of Revelation in Revelation 22:20 by saying, Come, Lord Jesus. And you hear, you hear people that pray that all the time. I pray it. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. So, if you want a reference, if you want a reference or a parallel um, to First and Second Thessalonians, look at First and Second Peter. Those books are very—they're very much in parallel with one another. Okay. Why is it important? Why is it important to believe that Christ is coming again? Why is it important? Why is it important to believe that Christ is coming again? Okay. What is hope referred to in the Bible as? What is hope? Something you drop over the side of the ship when you want to stop. It's an anchor. Hope is the anchor of our souls. It keeps us, it keeps us in place. It keeps us where we're supposed to be. Chuck? Right, right. So, knowing that, knowing that there has to be a belief that Christ will come again. That helps us in converting others when we talk to them about this, when they talk to them about the second coming. Converting others. Service to others. Purity of our own lives. Consolation to those who have lost loved ones. And alertness. Being ready. How many times in the gospel accounts does Christ talk about the fact that you need to be ready because you don't know when Christ is coming back, when, you, when, the, when the bridegroom will return, remember some of, the, some of the, the bridesmaids had their lamps trimmed. The others were begging for oil because they'd let theirs run out. They weren't ready. And the door was closed. You couldn't get back in. you got to be ready. So if we, outline this, if we outline this book in its five chapters, here's what you'd see. Chapter one is hope. For the new convert. 
As these people became Christians, there was hope for them. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2, the hope of the faithful servant. Those who had been Christians for a while, there was faith, uh, there was hope for the faithful Christian. Hope for the believer, purifying hope for the believer. A comforting hope for those who are bereaved. So 1st and 2nd Thessalonians are books that the Christian goes to to comfort themselves when a loved one dies, when a loved one passes. And there are many seats in this auditorium class that I've taught over the years. There are many seats now that sit empty. And there are good people that have been here that have gone on to their reward. Good, faithful men and women who have gone on to their reward. And there should be comfort. You know, Chuck was talking about the fact that, you know, when the return comes, there's going to be all of these things listed. And the very last thing that's listed there is knowing all of this. Comfort one another. There's comfort in knowing. If something's a mystery, that doesn't lend itself to comfort. There's comfort in knowing what's going to happen. And Paul is very explicit in what's, in, in what's going to happen. We have, we, have nothing, we have nothing left to the imagination. We have nothing left. Now, there, have there been misinterpretations of First and Second Thessalonians? Oh, yes. In fact, we'll spend a whole class talking about the rapture and why that is not biblical. In fact, it's abiblical. It's not biblical at all. But we're going to talk about the rapture because it's something that you're going to encounter when you talk to denominational folks. They're going to talk about the rapture and what's, what's coming at the rapture. There's no rapture. Unless you're talking about the literal second coming of Christ. There's no seven-year kingdom that's set up. There's no good people separated from the bad people for seven years. There's none of that. And so the final chapter, verse 5, is rousing hope for the sleeping Christian. We're comforted in knowing that, that Christians who have died are in a better place. They're waiting that second coming. They're waiting the time when Christ returns. So, um, you know... The alertness thing is really the, the thing. The, the church of Thessalonica, some of them had become complacent. Some of them had become lazy. Thus, the, if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. So there were people who were thinking, well, Christ is not coming. I'm just going to go back to my old ways. And he talks about that in verse 6 of the first chapter where he talks about the fact that they left idols. These weren't the Jews. These were the Gentiles. The Gentiles had worshipped idols and had left those idols behind and were now worshipping Christ. And so alertness or lack of awareness, or lack of alertness, would lead some of these Christians at Thessalonica back to things that they had done prior to becoming Christians. Return to idols, uh, indolence, impatience, sin, and in the end, everlasting doom when the, when the Lord does return. So, the book of First and Second Thessalonians, um, a book of hope. Um, we, will go, we will go through First Thessalonians. We will not have class the week of the gospel meeting, so we'll miss that part. But we should be able to comfortably get through uh, the book of First and Second Thessalonians during the 13 weeks of, of the class. Um, questions or thoughts at this point in time before we, even, before we even start into it? And so I have to tailor now. I have to tailor lessons because I'm not used to the, the, these times of change now. Classes start at like, uh, at like 1045 and go to 1130, so I'm, I, wasn't, 
I wasn't ready for that. I was ready to start a lot earlier, and I have a lot of um, other material, but I'm not going to share that with you this morning. So this handout should be fairly self-explanatory. It covers a lot of uh, the things that you need to know about. It's got the background is Acts 17. How they got to Acts 17 or how they got to Thessalonica, Acts 16, tells us how they got there after Philippi and they were chased out of there. Um, All the things that we talked about this morning. And those 17 phrases or those 17 words that appear nowhere else in the New Testament. And we'll talk about those. I'll give you those next week on a handout. Um, and we talked about all this. There's no quotations. This is one of the only epistles. There's no quotations from the Old Testament. And so next week we'll begin in 1 Thessalonians 1. And we'll talk about um, his ministry uh, to the church at Thessalonica. How we came to, how we came to be here. Uh, how, we, how he came to be in Thessalonica, who was with him, who was traveling with him, and we'll try to put some flesh on this. But as you read the book of 1 Thessalonians, read it through first century eyes. Don't read it, don't read it through 2022 eyes. Read it through the, the, the suffering that these people were, were encountering because they were a part of this new, this new faith, this new, uh, this new kingdom that Christ had established, had died on the cross, and uh, had risen from the dead, and many people saw him after he was risen, and he had ascended back, promising to come back again. And these people now are wrestling with that, the when, uh, of when he's coming back. So Paul goes to great extent um, to tell them all of these things that are going to happen when Jesus returns, except for the when, which he doesn't know, the angels in heaven don't know, the Son of God does not know, only God himself knows. And so when we begin that uh, we begin that. We'll begin that exegete of those um, next week. So uh, I'll give you a few minutes early be- back because I know we'll go long over the next few weeks. So you know, we'll do that.